So today, here's what we're going to do. This is a two-part series, okay? Two-part today and next Sunday um, on Christmas Day. Um, and here's the title of the message is Questions About Christmas, Part 1 and Part 2. Isn't that a creative title? Questions About Christmas, Part 1 and Part 2. And so um, part of, this is still part of the Discipleship in the Gospel series. I, I thought, what are some things that someone who's new to Christ might wonder about this season. What about some things in the text of Scripture that would kind of help them? At the same time, my kind of goal is for two things. One, that today, if you're not here and you are genuinely, you're without Christ, that you would ponder the Savior uh, for your own self and you would come. You are unfaithful. Uh, we are, are all are unfaithful. And we need, we need the Lord. We need Him as our Savior. Uh, we cannot save ourselves from our own sins. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is, um, you know, we'll discuss all the different views about Christmas and the paganism that, that may or may not be behind it and things of that nature. But in the end, what a travesty for this season to pass and not really ponder the Savior, right? So in the end, no matter what your kind of view is from a Christmas tree to, uh, you know, a mythical Santa Claus or any other trappings that happen, the commercialism, but if the Christ of the Christmas season is missed, a chance to ponder that, man, that's a really great opportunity this season. Um, and so I want to look at something called Questions About Christmas Part 1 and Part 2. Um, and so, um, uh, so here's what I'm planning to cover. And maybe this won't happen. Maybe it will. Some of it I'll have to kind of cut and hit the, you know, hit the ground here. Um, here one is this. Does the Bible forbid Christmas trees, right? Does the Bible forbid Christmas trees, right? So um, that's one question we'll answer. Is it wrong to write Merry Xmas? Okay. Another question, where were the wise men really from? Another question is, was the first St. Nick a, a real person? The next question is, is Christmas Day, December the 25th, just really a cover for a pagan Roman festival that's the equivalent of Mardi Gras, right? So... What's that? That's not on my list. <laughs> let me, hold on, let me add. Wait a minute, I need Wi-Fi to do that first. Okay. Yes, children can be, kids can be dismissed at Children's Ministry, Kids Club. They got some fun stuff back there this morning. I know they were getting some supplies from Target. We don't call it Target, we call it Target because we're fancy. So those are some of the things that I hope to answer just from the text of Scripture and kind of taking a look at it. Today, I want to look at two passages, Luke 2, Matthew 2. I want to answer two questions today. Now, remember, I may not get to all these questions, but these are just things that I have on my outline. These are things I have prepared uh, between this week and next week. And a lot of times this is a cutting room floor kind of thing. But here's what I want to focus on this morning. Uh, Two things, two questions. Well, were the innkeeper and the hotel guests really heartless? All right, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. Were they just heartless? Like, how dare they not give up their room, right? You ever thought this? Like, who are these people? You let a pregnant woman have a baby out, in a, out with a bunch of animals? Like, who are you? And then this innkeeper, like, who is that dude, right? Who just, I mean, really, you couldn't clear some room. You couldn't make some space. You couldn't go knock on a door. Like, Man, what's up with that? Why is Jesus being born where the animals are? So that's one question. Was the, were the innkeeper and hotel guests, were they just heartless? We're going to look at Luke 2. Then, 
another question that comes up, we're going to look at Matthew 2. And the question is, was the star, was the star that the wise men saw, was it act, an actual historical event? Okay, we're going to look at those two questions. And I think you'll get some things out of the text. And here's my hope. As we sing that last song, if you're online, you're here. If you're not in Christ, come, right? I hope you get that idea that when we talk about these texts, the ultimate thing I want you to get across is the Lord is inviting people to come. But then also, I think for us who are in Christ, I hope to create some unfamiliarity with a passage of text that maybe we've just read. And maybe the Lord would grip us and give us something new that would help us to ponder Christ during this season. I think that's what really captivates me about the Christmas season is after the shepherds, which we're not talking about them today, but you remember after the shepherds came, right? You remember it says that as a result of this, remember it says Mary what in her heart? Does anybody know? Pondered these things in her heart. Pondered means you're talking to yourself, you're rethinking, you're kind of mulling it over. I think sometimes we in Christ can get so familiar that it's like we we, we don't ponder the Christ of Christmas. Um, I think as a pastor, this is this is the season, honestly, I hate preaching this season. Not because I don't love Jesus, but it's kind of like, what am I going to say to people that they haven't heard 5,000 times during this season, right? Are, are y'all with me on this? Y'all, of course, or maybe y'all never think that because y'all are so sanctified and, you know, walking with Jesus and, right? But I think we'll get something out of this today. I think this may uh, be something to kind of bring our souls to a pondering. So first, let's go to Luke chapter 2, and let's just talk bad about somebody this morning, right? Don't you just like talking bad about people? That's a trick question. I caught you before you said amen. But let's talk bad about some people. Let's talk bad about this innkeeper. Who is this guy, right? And these rude people. I mean, come on. You're not going to give your room up for a pregnant woman? I mean, this is just ridiculous, isn't it? Have you ever thought that? Or am I the only one that's ever thought that? Who are these people? Okay, well, let's take a look at the text, and we're going to go back and go back through the text. Go to Luke chapter 2. By the way, this would be great for you to read with your kids. If you're looking for a devotion, this would be a great text to read with your kids. We, we kind of have a, um, a tradition that we read this um, all together in my family. And so we'll have Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day service, then we'll, we'll leave and we'll go see family in Texas for that week. And one of the things we'll do is we'll have, uh, my dad will read this passage of scripture to all the grandkids. I want you to take a look at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to go to verse 8. Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, for a census had to be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each in his own city. Verse 4. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Verse 5. In order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. All right. So first we see this. Um, If the question is, was the innkeeper and were the hotel guests heartless? I would say this. 
I don't think they were heartless. I don't think they existed. That's my conclusion. I don't think they existed. Now, here's what's interesting. I've got a legacy standard Bible, right? That, just kind of put my cards out on the table. I don't think there was actually an inn, like a hotel inn, for strangers that they were actually going to in the text, right? I don't think that. I don't think there are any hotel guests or inn guests, stranger guests, right? Did those actually exist? Yeah, we, we know those actually existed during that time. But that's not what I think, and I'm going to show you here in the text why I don't think that was actually going on. So I don't think that it was a heartless innkeeper, a heartless guest that would have a pregnant woman have her child where the animals lay and put their, you know, her child in a manger where animals eat. I don't think there was a full motel or anything like that. And here's one of the reasons I would tell you. Now, look back in the text, and I want you to notice verse 7. Okay, if you have, let's see, a ESV translation. Anybody got an ESV translation? ESV, English Standard Version? Okay. It says it laid him in the manger because there's no place for them in the, what does your ESV say? An inn. Okay. Has anybody got a King James Version? All right. The, the real Bible. Right. King James, the real Bible. Right. No one has King James. King James. What does King James say? In, right? It says in. Anybody got a New American Standard Bible? New American. What does New American say? It says the in. Now, what's, what's interesting, when you look up the Greek word there, used three times in the New Testament, that Greek word, katalima, kata, that word is used three times. And that word, when you look it up, it can mean in, but also guest room, right? Guest room. Now, when... When the word in is used, actually, like what the translators use, that word in can denote a kind of in for strangers or in in a sense of this is a guest spot in the house of a family. So when you look in the text, we find this, that there's a reason where I have an LSB version right here. It says guest room. If you have an NIV, does anybody have an NIV? Right, NIV will say guest room. Uh, if you have a New Living Translation or the Southern Baptist Holman Christian Standard Bible, it'll say something like a lodging place. They kind of pick the middle ground. They didn't go in or guest room. They just picked the middle ground lodging place, right? I don't think that's a bad translation either. But what I want you to find is I, I don't think that anybody was turning her away or anything or Joseph for that fact. I don't think that at all. I think actually this was actually a spot in a family home, a family of David. That's what I really think it is. Now, I'm going to come back to that idea here in just a minute. Um, let me visit to you, with you another word, and then we're going to come back to this. Hold your place there and look at Luke 10. Look at Luke 10. This helps build my case for why I don't think this was a kind of one of these, you're a stranger in town, we're visiting, a whole, we're visiting some kind of inn, we need a place to stay, some place you pay for, right? Luke chapter 10 in verse 25, this is the parable of a good Samaritan, right? You know this, Luke chapter 10. But we'll read it, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is Luke 10, 26. And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was, now he gives him a parable. Watch this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going along the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, right? Religious guy passes this guy over. Likewise, a Levite, also of a priestly line, when he came to the place, saw him pass on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came to him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to a, what does all your versions say? In. Everybody's version says in right here, right? And took care of him. And on the next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will pay you. Now, it's interesting. The word used for in here is not the same one used in Luke chapter 2. The word used for in here is pandokion, right? Really not an important word for you to know, but it's a different Greek word. And that pandokion, that word denotes this idea of an in that you stay in, that you pay for, for strangers, right? That's what we're dealing in the text right here. But the one that's used, katalima, that Greek word is what's used in Luke chapter 2. Go back to Luke chapter 2. That one is an in, but as you, and most of you have some kind of app where you can look up Greek words, but you got your Wi-Fi turned off, so why would you do that right now unless you don't, you know, download the app, right? Because you see I'm trying to kind of train us, right? Okay. But you see, it's a different word. And you'll, you'll see that this word actually is this idea of a guest room. That's why I like the LSB that I have up here says a guest room. Now, what's the significance? Why is that really interesting to us? We'll go back to Luke chapter 2 and I'll show you. So I love the song that we sang today, right? All those are unfaithful come. And we have this idea that there was this really mean innkeeper and these really inhospitable guests that just wouldn't let poor pregnant Mary stay. But I don't think that's the case at all. And in fact, I'm, I'm not really convinced personally that from the text and seeing and understanding what that word, that guest room that was in a house, I don't think it was some kind of second-rate place. I think what we really see in this passage, like why would, why would Luke mention this passage? I mean, because here's the thing about Jesus' birth. It was a normal birth. It was supernatural in its conception, but Jesus' life was a normal human life. He was God, but he was also man, right? Two natures, one person, right? But we find in the text that Luke's cataloging that Jesus, not, not only is he from something supernatural, but also he was born as anybody else. He was, he was born in such a way that he qualifies to be the second Adam. And he's born in such a way that it's a come and see kind of thing. Now, I'll lay that out here in a minute as we go through the text. If you look, if you already know verse 1 through 4, we find that there was a census that had to be taken. Look in verse 3. And everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David. Now, what you got, we understand is this. They would not be staying in some... Pandokion, since in that you paid for, like we see with the Samaritan, but a Catalima kind of place, a, a, a guest home, an inn that would be actually in the family home of some family relative. They're there because of a census, and they're there because they got family there. They're there because he's from the line of David. So they would have been staying with family members. Now, some would say, well, they wouldn't be staying with family members because, remember, 
Mary is with child, and that's kind of not something you do when you're unmarried. They're betrothed. So most would suppose that they would be have to stay somewhere, and all the relatives would kind of ostracize them, which I don't think is a bad presupposition. But I will also say this. The unique thing about Mary, what saved her, is remember when Joseph heard about it, he was going to divorce her during that betrothal. But remember what happened? The angel told him no. And so he continues on with the marriage with the betrothal and the very fact that Joseph still stood by her in a society where if you had a husband, you had protection. So the fact that Joseph was continued to stand by her brought her in that kind of society some protection. So I don't think that there is an ostracism from family members that most would suppose why they, she had no place to stay. No, I think they had a place to stay. They had a place to stay and it was with family. They were in the city of David. Verse 5, they were there in order to register among with Mary, who was betrothed to him, who was with child. Verse 6, and it happened that while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. I want you to notice in verse 6, and while they were there, the days were fulfilled to give birth. We have this idea of she's kind of riding on a donkey, right? sundown in Bethlehem, right? It's right after the Christmas Eve service and Joseph is like frantically knocking on all these doors and stuff like that. I would actually say, I think they were there way before that, right? I don't think it was like, whoops, we got to have a last minute place. Actually, from the text, think that she was actually there way ahead of time. They were way there way ahead of time. It's not like now where you kind of travel at the last minute and arrive someplace. Things worked a little bit slower then, right? And so I think they were actually already in place, but it had come time to have the child. And where she had the child, I don't think it was a last minute. Uh Uh-oh, what are we going to do? I'll show this to you. Look in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. She lied him in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough because there was no place for them in the guest room. That's what my LSB, I think it's a good translation from that Catalima. Now, here's the thing you got to understand about a, a... This is kind of from archaeology digs in the area of kind of how a house was constructed. Typically, a a multi-level house, this is what it looked like. It would be built into the hills of, of, of of Bethlehem. And your typical bottom level, kind of like, Anybody come from up north where everybody had basements? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like you would just have a basement if you were up north. It was kind of like the basement, but really it was the ground floor. It was where everything happened. Typically in that bottom level, this is where at night you would bring in the animals, right? So they would be protected from either thieves or from predators. And they could be warmed during the cold desert nights when there would be cold desert nights. It was not uncommon that you would bring your animals inside your house. Now, you might be thinking to me, to, thinking, gross, I would never bring animals into my house. Really? We'll pay for our animals to have daycare now, right? I don't think we're too far above these people, right? We'll, I mean, we'll pet, our, we'll, we'll pet our dog and our cat who just got out of the litter box, then go make a sandwich afterwards without washing our hands, right? Oh, you know you do, right? So, I mean, like, we're not too far evolved above these people. So, you're at the bottom floor. Typically, this was hewn out into the rock. And typically, at this bottom floor, you would have a place hewn out either into the floor or into the side that would be the feeding trough, where the manger, right? The feeding trough, where animals would feed at night when you brought them in. Typically, at this bottom floor is also where the cooking happened, where a lot of the fellowship happened. This is where the activity 
I mean, for those of you that have stairs in a house, don't you just despise having stairs, right? Like, things don't happen at the top level of the stairs. Things happen at the lowest level where there is the least amount of energy to get to it, right? So the bottom level is where all the activity happens. It's also where the animals come in at night. But it's not. But for them, the animals were not one of these things where, where ooh, I can't believe these dirty things. This was normal to have animals around. This was kind of normal life. Um, they, you know, the smells, the smells that are very earthy and farmy, right? We're not offensive. Anybody raised up on a farm? Anybody raised up on a farm, right? Like, you never knew something smelled bad, right? I mean, you know, you might know now if you don't live there, but growing up there, you never actually knew anything was a different smell. Now, you take a city slicker like myself, and you take me to a farm instantly, I'm just like, woo, pungent out here, right? But for them, it was, a, it, was a, it was of no consequence. Now, so traditionally, this is what it would look like. If it was a multi-level home, the bottom level, typically dug into the ground, dug into the hard stone, you'd have a manger dug out either in the floor or in the side. This is where the animals would eat from. Meals were prepared down there during the day. You brought in the animals at night. And then if you were someone with some resources, you had a second level. Any levels typically that you had above would be one of the places that you'd, that you'd sleep. It would also be the place where you would have guest rooms, right? Guest rooms. That would be where you would put your catalema, right? That would be where if you had guests coming in to stay. Now, if you didn't have resources and didn't have the kind of, you know, second level kind of stuff, your guest room would actually be some, would be on the first level. And a part of that first level would typically be built into the ground, typically into the hilly countryside. And at that level would be where everything happened in the home, right? So, and if someone stayed with you, it's not like they had their own room. They would just have some corner or section of the first floor. That would be their dwelling, their guest room. It wouldn't be a place upstairs. If it was someone of meager means, it would just be a place at the bottom level. But they'd have a section to go. Now, I'm telling you all this because look back at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger that I would propose was built out, was normal. It wasn't some wooden box. It was built out into the stone because there was no place for them in the guest room, right? So this place, I think, was a, was a family member that did have some resources, that there was a guest room, but because there was a census, there were other people from the city of David, they weren't staying up in that guest room. Now, you might go, well, Nick, let's go back to this. Okay, there's no innkeeper. There's no people staying in their individual rooms. There's just some... Honry, honry family members at Christmas time. Nick, I get it, right? They should have gave up that upper room and put, put her up there and went down there. Is everybody with me on this? But we, we have to deal with something that, that I think we have a hard time understanding. It's not like being downstairs was a bad thing, right? It's not like being downstairs was a subpar kind of thing. You're, you're, traditionally, if you have the guest room, that's where they would stay. But if that guest room area is full, you have another place for them to stay, and they would stay on that first floor. Activity happened on that first floor. Meal preparation, conversation, in and out, animals being brought in at night for safety. It wasn't a place of a second-tier status, although I could say what a humbling place for the infinite God of the universe to be born in a place where animals lay. Still humbling, but yet I wouldn't say is a self uh, second-rate existence. Now, I love that our song earlier, Come, All You Unfaithful, Come, right? 
What I love about this passage is it tells me something. The fact that he was born and was laid in a manger means that they, the guest room was full upstairs, that they were staying downstairs, and that the Savior comes in the world. Yes, it's a humble entrance, but yet it's an it's a entrance where the basic message is, come on. Everybody downstairs, right? They get to see the Savior. They're not hidden away upstairs in the guest room with the privacy. What is it? As people are coming and going, as we see the shepherds are going to be coming eventually. And, you know, the Magi aren't coming yet. That's like, you know, sometime later typically. But we see that Jesus being downstairs and being in the, in the feeding trough, it was a place where there was activity through the day. It was a place where people could come and see and experience and the story be told. It's a very public place. It was a place for the unfaithful to come and watch and see like we see the shepherds later on. So do I think there were some inhospitable people that, that, that the Savior is there? No, I don't think that. I just think it was the unique place where the Lord decided that this is where he was going to be born. And it was a place that was very public in the household. It was a place that everybody saw and what an opportunity to come. Okay, so that's one. Don't think that's kind of one for the Christmas season. Hope it, hope, hope it kind of helps us to ponder in our heart. What floor does Jesus get to live on in our life, right? What floor does he get at Christmas time? Is he, is he stacked away separately or is he the center of what's going on on the bottom floor of our house? And if you live in a house with no stairs, maybe you should bow the knee and say, thank you, Jesus, right? I hate stairs. Stairs of the devil. That's just my personal thing. It, it, let me just tell you, 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 I hate stairs in a house. And this is why I hate stairs in a house. Because who wants to go to the top of those stairs, right? And the second thing is, it takes so much energy to go to the top of those stairs. Like, why would you ever want to? In my house, I don't even know what's upstairs most of the time. I mean, who even knows, right? It's a mystery. Don't want to go up there. And if you ever have a room upstairs, here's the worst part. Have you ever, anybody ever had a room upstairs that you leave something in your room and you leave the house and then you're thinking to yourself, man, I know I need that, but I need it that bad? (laughs) You know what it's like. So here's the second thing. So here's another question. Was the star a, a historical event? Go to Matthew chapter 2. Was the star a historical event? I think it falls in line with this idea of come. Was the star a historical event? So there's some theories, right, about the star that the wise men saw. Let's read about this passage and we'll then take a deeper look at it. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, by the way, I'm looking at my clock, my watch here. I'm like, I got like different clocks here and stuff. So I think, okay, it's 1049 for all y'all that want to know. Okay, good. Look in verse, chapter two, verse one of Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, by the way, we, we may talk a little bit about more of the Magi, but some of the traditional thinking is, I mean, obviously they're from the east. They're east of Jerusalem. How much of a distance, that's one to talk about. But th- these magi come. Now, these magi, obviously, it's it, some time period, although there may be a, a, a discrepancy of how long of a distance, it seems that there might have been some great time period because, you remember, you recall later, Herod has 
all the two-year-olds and younger killed off. Now, he could have just been extra generous in case they were being lied to, or it could have been a two-year period. We don't know. That's not my point right now. My point is this. Keep looking, verse 2. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king saw this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He was inquiring of them where Christ was to be born. And they said to him, And Bethlehem of Judea, for this, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you behold, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. And when Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you've found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Now, now after hearing the king, they went on their way and behold the star which they had seen in the east was going on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground. They worshiped him. They, and then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. So the, the thing that, that people come to sometimes is they'll say, hey, let's prove that this actually happened. Because when you look back in, um, when you look back in astronomy, we can piece together some significant um, cosmology kind of events that could have been this star. Right. So some have said, here's some of the theories. There was a supernova, which is an exploding star that can last for months. Some some have some who kind of study um, um, astronomy have kind of said, wait, hey, uh, there's a there was a supernova around that time. Some would say maybe there was a comet. Some would say there was something called a conjunction, which means two planets pass each other and create kind of a greater light. Astronomers say that in two B.C., Jupiter and Venus were so close to each other that they would look like one star, right? So there's a lot of people that would go, hey, this is it. We see that this, this star was actually just a real star, a cosmology kind of event. Now, what's interesting, when you start looking at the words that are used to the, the original language, you start to wonder, is that really what was going on? First, let me do a couple things. Look back at the text and do you see the word star in verse 2? You see the word star in verse 7? Star in verse 9? Star in verse 10? Right? They saw a star. Now, the Greek word for there is aster. Aster. Right? Which is where we get our word astronomy. Astronomy. Now, that word star can mean a big gas helium filled kind of, you know, you know entity like a typical star. But also, and if those of you who have the, you know... Um, the ability, when you look it up, it also can mean an illuminous point of light, right? A luminous point of light. So the first thing I want to point out to you is the star in this, I actually don't think it's a, it's a, you know, a conjunction or a comet or a supernova. I actually would say it's a supernatural star that actually is not seen by everybody. It's actually not seen by everybody. If it was this big event, right, in the, in the heavens, even Herod would have seen it. Remember when they come to Herod? Herod doesn't act like he knows anything about this star. Neither do the chief priests and scribes. No one knows anything about this star. If there was such a kind of cosmic event, don't you think they would have seen it? But they don't. 
I would actually say this star is something supernatural. I kind of think this. Remember the children of Israel when they left Egypt? What led them by day and by night? A pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. That it's not an uncommon for God to do something supernatural to lead his to lead his people. I would like to kind of posit to you that this star in the east was actually not some super cosmic event that's a result of a supernova or two planets aligning like Jupiter and Venus. I would actually say it's something kind of it's something that God had done miraculously that God had done to bring these wise men to Jerusalem at the right time so that man could come. So we find this, the, the word star, when you look it up, when you look up the Greek word here, it, it can mean like a, a gas-filled planet, but it also can just mean a luminous point of light. Now, second, I would look at the text and notice the word east. Notice in verse 2, And when he was born king of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, have you ever thought this? Wait a minute. Okay, here's the wise men. We know they come from the east, but they say they saw his star in the east. But Jerusalem is west. You ever thought that? Like, how can they see his star in the east, but yet travel west? Are y'all making, is this making sense to me? Like, how does this even happen? Well, look down at verse 9. Now they were hearing the king. They went their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east was going before them. So why do these wise men who see a star in the east travel the opposite direction to the west... Whether these wise men are, uh, you know, not too far east or they're all the way back in, uh, you know, Persia. But, but why do they travel west when they see the star in the east? Now, um, how many of you have, if you have an ESV, right, or a NIV or a NLT, when you see, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the, what does it say in your translation? Rose. You see the word rose. Now, my LSB actually says east. The uh, King James, the um, New American Standard Version all say east. But yet some translations actually say rise or rose right there. And actually, that's a faithful translation. There's nothing. East is not a bad translation. But when you look up this word east, Anatole, it actually can mean east or actually rising. I want to propose to you that. What actually happened with the wise men is this was not a star like a cosmic Jupiter and the Milan on the east and then they travel west. What I would say is this. They're in the east and they see a star and the star, this miraculous luminous light is in the west. Because we all know right at night like things come in the east and set, rise in the east, sets in the west. They're seeing something that's totally different. They're seeing a star rise in the west. That's not a normal thing, by the way. That's not how the rotation works of the earth. You don't see things rise in the west and set in the east. It rises in the east, sets in the west. So they see something rise from the west, and they start to follow it. Now, whether how long they're following it, if it's truly two years, that's another subject matter. But they're following it. Now, let's, let's read through the text, and I'll kind of point some things out to you. Keep with me. And there he had been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star... In the east or rising and have come to worship him. I would like to propose to you that they saw a luminous light rising and they actually saw it in the west. Because that word east can mean rising as well. We have seen his star rising. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. By the way, he heard it, never saw it. So 
there's something miraculous that they're, that they're seeing that he's not seeing. Look at verse 4. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he was inquiring of them where Christ was to be born. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this it was written by the prophets. By the way, they're exactly right. You know, they, they know the scriptures, they just don't know the God of the scriptures. Isn't that a dangerous thing, right? You can know the scriptures, but not the God of the scriptures. That's the scribes and Pharisees here. Now look at verse 7. And Herod secretly called the Magi and carefully determined from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and I may worship him. Now after hearing the king, they went their way. And behold, the star, the luminous light, which they had seen in the east, in the rising, was going on before them. You know, it's interesting. This star, this luminous light, they saw rising. I would propose to you it was actually in the west. They follow it. At some point, they're not seeing it anymore. Herod doesn't see it. No one else sees it. And when they leave Herod, they don't have the star. Notice in the text, they're kind of excited. Now they're here. They're making a six-mile track from Herod to Bethlehem, and all of a sudden they see this star. By the way, who probably doesn't see the star? Herod. How do we know that? Because don't you think he would have followed down after it? I mean, if he would have saw this miraculous star, don't you think after kind of him being kind of alerted, he would have kind of, you know, sent somebody else beside these strangers that come into town? But no, they, this star leads them and takes them. Verse 10, and when they saw the star... They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Why were they excited to see the star? Because the star is what had led them the whole time. They couldn't, and get this, they couldn't find their way to the Savior on their own. God had to bring them to the Savior by His own power. What a great, remem- what a great point that we've got to remember for, the, for coming to Christ. And coming to the Christ of the season is God is the one that draws Man is so insufficient to save himself, he can't do nothing to save himself. So they see the star again. They're rejoicing. Look at verse 11. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell into the ground and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gold and frankincense and myrrh. By the way, people think there are only three because of three different gifts. I would like to propose to you, I think there was quite more than this. You Usually, if you were going to travel... You didn't travel in just groups of three. You usually traveled with quite a bit more. I'm, I'm pretty confident there was a lot more than them. And what's really interesting, you look in verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed their own country. By the way, if you keep reading, God, you know, Joseph takes flight from Bethlehem and takes flight into Egypt. And he's not a guy with a lot of resources, but guess what his resources are now? It's from the Magi, right? Now, what's interesting is this. Because the Magi come, no one, they get to see the Savior. They get to go back to the east and declare it. But not only that, everybody is alerted. But not only that, they provide resources that protects, protects Jesus during, uh, during that genocide so that the Savior could come back into the nations later. So even what you find this idea, man is unfaithful, but God is faithful. And when we come to the Christmas season, we see in the text of Scripture that God is doing a lot of things. By the way, not the way we would do things, but doing things His way to try to come. He's trying to bring people to the Savior. Now, He's not doing it all the traditional ways that we think. 
because God doesn't work that way. We think that if God was going to make an announcement about the Savior, he'd be born in some royal palace. But he says, no, it's going to be in a manger. And we think that if God was going to announce it, um, you know, with great gifts and from the wise men, it would be with a, a greater flair. But it was a little bit under the radar because God had a, a plan to come, to bring. So I love the Christmas season because there's really two things to do at the Christmas season. It's either if you're in Christ, it's to ponder who Jesus is during this season or it's to come as, to him as Savior. But all are unfaithful and unworthy and there's only one worthy and that's Jesus. And I love the story of Christmas because we've got the Magi here who at great cost and great sacrifice to themselves, God is leading them and drawing them so they can come. And we, and we, find, we find the same thing over and over with Joseph and Mary. God puts them in a position where others can come and see. The family can come and see. So either he's the Savior and it's time to come, or maybe it's just time to ponder him more at this season and actually come. That's the dangerous, most dangerous thing, I think, at Christmas time. I mean, the whole Santa Claus thing, yeah, that, that's dangerous. It's commercialism and kind of, you know all the trappings behind that and 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 some of the paganism that may be evolved in the history. We'll talk more about that next week. But really, I think the most dangerous thing about the Christmas season is that you don't really come. Like, there's no pondering of who Christ is. There's no, there's no considering how miraculous is this, that man is so unfaithful and unable to save himself that infinite God must take on human nature, must take on humanity, and make right what the first Adam did wrong. That man is so incapable that he can't even come with a, with a solution in of himself. Man is so incapable that he can't discover something really great unless either the angels announce it to the shepherds, or a star reveals it to the men in the east, or even God sets it up that when the birth of Jesus comes... It starts off and the family get to hear about it, right? And they put him in a place where the family can know that the Savior has come. Isn't it amazing what a faithful God does with unfaithful people and puts Christmas in a way that people can come? Would you stand with me and let us pray over this and sing back to the Lord? We enjoy your word, we enjoy you, and we love you because you first loved us. If there's somebody here who they were raised up in this church or maybe they made a profession at a young age or maybe now the this gospel message is becoming a reality. Maybe maybe someone here is maybe sin is starting to seem real in their life. Maybe you've just revealed it as only you can and not man's words. If there's someone without Christ may today be their day. May they call out to you. May they Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can do this. And for the rest of us, would you let us not pass this season, this week, next Sunday, without a pondering, without a thinking, without a meditating, without putting away distractions, letting our souls rest the way that Mary pondered. May we ponder this magnificent truth of God taking on human flesh, living among us, going and dying the death we deserve to die. 
Let us ponder this as God's people. And God's people said, Amen.